Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of JM Rewind. JM Rewind gives us an opportunity to check out some of the recent conversations we've had on JM and the AM. Gregory Zuckerman is first up. His book is called A Shot to Save the World, the inside story of the life or death race for a COVID-19 vaccine. Gregory Zuckerman, first up on JM Rewind at the Nahum Siegel Network. I have to thank uh, Rabbi Eliezer Zwickler, the Mardasra, the... Uh spiritual leader of Congregation Avasachim at A. Jacob and David in West Orange, New Jersey. He uh, connected me to our next guest, who is the author of a brand new book. Gregory Zuckerman is with us. The book is entitled A Shot to Save the World, the inside story of the life or death race for a COVID-19 vaccine. Gregory Zuckerman is a special writer at the Wall Street Journal, where he writes about business, economic, and investing topics. He's a three-time winner of the Gerald Loeb Award, the highest honor in business journalism, regularly appears on different media outlets to discuss business, and is author of The Greatest Trade Ever, The Frackers, and The Man Who Solved the Market. Plus, of course, now author of A Shot to Save the World, the inside story of the life-or-death race for a COVID-19 vaccine. Gregory Zuckerman, a pleasure to welcome you to JM in the AM. Hey, great to be here. I would imagine there are a lot of answers to the question of when did research begin on the COVID-19 vaccine? Well, there are, and in my book I describe them. I mean, it's a long story, and it's a reassuring story uh, in a lot of ways. Um, One uh, could get nervous uh, because in 300, literally 330 days from the sequencing of this virus, when it was released in January 2020, 330 days later, we had a vaccine um, that we were rolling out. So one might get a little wary about that. But um, I was reassured because when you dig into the research and you learn about the history and you talk to the scientists who produced this thing, you realize that the work didn't go back years. It went back decades in terms of developing the approaches that led to these vaccines. So I came away pretty reassured, frankly. Are there are there aspects of this that the you know average people like me uh, can appreciate in terms of what was developed 10, 20 or 30 years ago? Was it was there a, a specific uh, part of this medication that's in the vaccine or a specific type of uh, apparatus that was used? Like, is there what what was done years ago where people kept saying to us, don't worry, this vaccine research did not start when covid began, but it really began so much earlier. Well, the key is this uh, mRNA, um, messenger RNA. And what's fascinating is that there were a few um, unlikely scientists uh, around the world who said, you know what, we think this molecule can be the basis of a vaccine or or a drug. And most everybody else kind of dismissed them, ignored them, mocked them, said, don't waste your time on mRNA for for various reasons. I'll I'll make it quite simple, but mRNA is a molecule. We all have it in our body. It plays a really important role, delivering instructions to the cells to develop proteins. But it gets chopped up really quickly. It gets eliminated. It's a very short-lived molecule. So all the experts said, don't waste your time on something that gets eliminated by the body. And some really persistent scientists, some of whom, um, one came from Israel, I write about him uh, in my book, others from all over the other parts of the world, um, most of the Americans, and they said, you know what, we're going to ignore the, the conventional wisdom, and we're going to ignore the experts, and to their credit, they persisted, and that's kind of what I write about, the, the years of work where they ignored the experts, and they made headway, and like you said, there are little things along the way, they had to uh, encase in, in, in this, this molecule to get it into the body, 
so that the body won't chop it up. And it was you know, kind of a different trial and error, and it took work. But um, there was a lot of drama behind the scenes that I kind of figured out and, and present to people in the book. Wow. Uh, and the speed with which it happened, and again, you described it as less than a year, right, from the time that the COVID-19 vaccine, uh, excuse me, COVID-19 uh, pandemic began until the vaccine was rolled out. It's when you think about it, and I know in the context of history, obviously, there are times when vaccines took four or five or more years, and obviously there was an era when there are no vaccines. But when you think about it, we, we have to appreciate living in this era and having something be developed with the speed that it was developed. When you're, when you're doing all this research... And you hear, uh, you know, a lot of talking heads on TV and radio and all through the web. And you hear, you know, average people in shul and other places, you know, giving their expertise about why this vaccine is good or no good or why they opt to take it or opt not to take it. I mean, do you roll your eyes a little bit because your level of research into this thing, which concluded, I believe, you'll tell me if I'm right, uh, that you have great faith in the vaccine, you know, has a tremendous amount of uh, a tremendous number of hours of, of research behind it. And when you hear, you know, people out there with no expertise in this area deciding, you know, what they think is the right thing, it must drive you a little crazy. Listen, I, it, no, because if I hadn't done this research, I would be just as skeptical as the next guy in shul who kind of says something to me that, hey, I'm, I'm a little worried about this vaccine. So I, it probably would have been me had I not put all this research and talked to the, the scientists within Moderna, within BioNTech, within Pfizer, all in, within government agencies, et cetera. So I, I empathize with that concern. But what, one thing I really come away with from the book is Hakaratov. You've got to realize this is modern science's greatest uh, accomplishment. And um, had this virus, it, I don't think we realize, had this virus arisen just a few years ago, let's say, I don't know, 2016, right. 2017, we would not have been ready. So the fact that these scientists were ready because of all that, those years of work I talk about is something we really need to appreciate that, um, that, that we, we, you know, Hashem put them in the position to, to be able to save us. Um, and these vaccines um, are remarkable. They're, they're, they're something that I don't think anybody would have predicted uh, just a few years ago. So, uh, and, and one thing people need to also appreciate is the reason why there was such speed involved, why we we're able to roll them out so quickly um, in 2020, 2021, is because there was a lot of money out there to support these vaccines from the government, um, and that would be the Trump administration, from scientists earlier, from private investors. So as a result, we were able to test them, develop them, and manufacture them at the same time. And that's never been done before. So we didn't cut corners. They tested them in, 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 in thousands of people before they were rolled out. But it was because there was, there was so much money out there. Uh, thank God. So you don't, Gregory Zuckerman's with us. He's the author of the book, A Shot to Save the World, The Inside Story of the Life or Death Race for a COVID-19 Vaccine. So you don't take it upon yourself to convince people to take the vaccine. I mean, it's no secret that there are plenty of people in every community around the country uh, that are quote-unquote anti-vaxxers and are very skeptical about this vaccine. Um, I mean, I, I've had three shots, so you know, I'm not one of them. Uh, but you don't take it upon yourself to uh, the, the role of trying to convince them that this vaccine is in fact uh, you know, on the up and up. So I'm a journalist. I'm a, I'm a storyteller. I am not out to persuade anyone. But um, you can't come away from my book without um, being reassured that uh, it was years of research that went into these vaccines. They weren't thrown together quickly. They didn't cut corners. And they're very serious-minded scientists. The people I write about, and my book is really about the people. Who, who are the people that create these vaccines, that um, got behind them, that championed them? And they're human. They're um, ambitious. 
Um, sometimes they want to get rich and famous, um, but they also want to save our lives. They're very mixed characters, and they're not out to hurt. So in some ways, I was very much reassured by talking to these people and doing the research. And I'm a skeptical journalist, so I went in with a lot of questions. But no, it's not my job to convince anyone. Um, I do believe in them. Um, I've had my booster and um, the data is really very persuasive, but it's also very persuasive when you get a chance to talk to the pioneers and the champions, that these are serious-minded scientists who are really out to help us. And do they make mistakes? Sure. Do the government officials make mistakes? Definitely. Um, but all things being equal, um, we've got to really just be appreciative. And I don't think, we, I think we're too close to it. We don't realize the, the, how remarkable these things are, these vaccines, and how these people stepped up. And uh, they, behind the scenes, they've been going 24-7 just to try to create these things. So I'm, I'm appreciative of that. Right. So, I mean, skeptics would say that there's, it's a tremendous industry with a, uh, you know, with a lot of financial reward. And, and as you know, sometimes there are people who roll their eyes when they hear that, you know, a booster is necessary or a fourth vaccine may be necessary because, you know, many people realize and conclude that, uh, you know, if you follow the money trail, there are a lot of people out there who are making a tremendous amount of money on those decisions. So, there's like a, you know, it, 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 it's sometimes hard to separate uh, the the skepticism, the benefit that one looks at that, you know, some may be obtaining from this whole process uh, from the science and from the, uh, you know, the life-saving aspect of the entire thing. I agree. And listen, I'm a journalist. I work at the Wall Street Journal. My, uh, <laughs> a lot of what I do is kind of try to be skeptical. And I've written stories about big pharma, about Wall Street, about accounting firms. And, you know, there are a certain percentage of every industry where you have to be skeptical and people are doing things maybe with the, not the proper motivations. But the bulk of the people that I've talked to, the researchers in the government labs, the academics behind some of these approaches, the, the executives even at these companies, I mean, I know people with stage four cancer who've come into Moderna and um, and just wanted to save lives. And they've been working so far, so hard over the past year to develop more. And, and they're kicking themselves. They say, we, we wish we had been able to produce more of these vaccines. And to, to, see, to hear their frustration when they see people who, who point, forget about not being resistant and, and not wanting to take these vaccines, they point fingers at them and they accuse them of, of doing things improperly. And it makes them sad. So listen, I'm, I'm close to my subject. I'm close to these scientists, and I've been reassured by my research from my book. Uh, a couple of things you point out in terms of the bigger picture. One is how government and private industry can work together, because if not for this partnership, we wouldn't be at this point, right? Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's unique um, how it all came together. Um, Operation Warp Speed was really effective for all kinds of different reasons. It, it wrote big checks to the government, to the companies, and that allowed them to manufacture vaccines before they were approved. And that's one of the reasons why it went so fast. Why would you manufacture, spend billions of dollars to produce something before it was approved? It's never before, before in history been done. And that's part of the reason why this vaccine was, so, was done so quickly. And the reason was there was a lot of money, both in the government um, and private industry, too. We have to thank Wall Street investors, too. And the other thing is, and, and you just referred to it uh, when you mentioned the cancer, but um, uh, we have to realize that this vaccine and all the revolutionary aspects of it could lead uh, to scientists focusing on new challenges. And uh, you write about AIDS and malaria and multiple sclerosis and, of course, cancer, where we're hoping that there will, in fact, be vaccines and other types of therapeutics uh, that will develop because of this whole COVID-19 episode. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm hopeful. I don't want to say optimistic. I don't want to get my hopes up too high. But the whole idea of mRNA, messenger RNA, is you send a message to the body to create 
a protein. In this case, it was the, the spike protein. We educated the body to fight off uh, this coronavirus. But hypothetically, and this is what scientists are working on right now, you can tell them the body to create any kind of protein um, and teach the body all kinds of lessons. And hypothetically, you could take on all kinds of viruses and diseases and illnesses. And um, I, all I can tell you is that the, the scientists, the people within these companies, in the labs, deep in these labs and these companies in Boston and elsewhere, they're, they're moving on to, and they're focusing on, on the next target and be it cancer, be it MS, be it something else that hounds our community, hounds others. So um, I'm, I'm optimistic and I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. Uh, how did you get to the conclusion that the virus likely emerged naturally as opposed to originating in a Wuhan lab? So, yeah. So, listen, uh, likely means, I'd say, I don't know, 80% chance. There's a 20% chance that uh, it leaked out. I don't think it was created by the Chinese. That would be kind of silly. We're going to create this this um, virus, um, lethal virus, and be so sure that it's not going to get all uh, spread throughout China. That's probably unrealistic. Did it leak out? It's possible that it leaked out. But, yeah, I'm more in the camp of uh, the fact that um, past viruses have been so many. There have been other coronaviruses that, that were natural. This one, um, we, we don't have a host, an animal host. We haven't identified one yet. But it takes years sometimes. I mean, I, mean, I remember back in the days of AIDS, I mean, I was young, but I remember people pointing the finger at the CIA and KJB, and, uh, and then eventually they found the animal host. So I think that eventually we'll find the animal host that – started this whole um, new coronavirus very interesting what do you think of, i mean look you're you're you know you're I, I get you're a journalist did a lot of research the book is amazing it it really answers a lot of questions and gives us a lot of hope uh, for both the present and the future present meaning the uh, efficacy of the uh, covid19 vaccine and future because of what we discussed regarding uh, other things that the scientists are going to be pursuing or already pursuing uh, but but what about the you have to have i assume uh, some opinion about the uh, politicization of the entire episode and how, you know, depending on what side of the aisle you're on or where you come from politically, uh, it usually defines how you feel about every aspect of this uh, a pandemic, including the vaccine. Um, is that unavoidable in your research because it's just such a politicized uh, topic at this point? It's so sad and it's so frustrating. And um, I'm in a unique uh, position. In shul, I'm to the left of a lot of people. At work, I'm to, to, to the right of people. So I'm sort of a moderate in that way. And it, it's just so sad. To me, the problem is there aren't enough situations, circumstances where we get to meet people in today's society that don't think like we do. Nowadays, you, you read a Facebook post by someone who you agree with, and you interact with people in shul or elsewhere with people you agree with. And you know, we, we don't really interact with, with others. And as a result, we kind of dismiss what they have to say or point a finger at them and accuse them of things. A, a few years ago, I wrote a book called The Frackers, and it was about this energy revolution, how all of a sudden we're, we're producing so much oil and gas in this country. And I traveled to little towns in Oklahoma and North Dakota and Texas and um, all, all over the country, Louisiana, and I got to know people, and it was the first time. And you know, you sit across from someone, and, and you tell them, "Hey, I, sorry, I can't eat this because uh, you know I keep kosher, but I can drink a, a coke with you or something." And, and they respect you, and they talk to you, and, they, and, and we have much more in common than you would think with others, people that seem different. And people on, on the left don't interact with the right, and, and, and vice versa. And it's really sad to me. And um, uh, like everything else in society, this vaccine has become politicized, and it really shouldn't be. You can be wary, but look at the research and figure out how it, how it evolved. 
um, don't don't rely on your brother-in-law who put something on Facebook and, and I heard something on YouTube. You know, pick up a book or or, or, or get some information and, and try to be informed. But it doesn't have to be politicized. And yet, like everything else in society, it is. And one way to start uh, finding out about the research and investigating all of this is with your book. Gregory Zuckerman's book is entitled A Shot to Save the World, The Inside Story of the Life or Death Race for a COVID-19 Vaccine. The book is amazing, and I really appreciate you joining us this morning. Continued good luck to you. Thank you, and I love your show, so uh, keep up uh, your good work as well. Appreciate that very, very much. And a big thank you to Rabbi Eliezer Zwickler, who is the spiritual leader of Congregation Avas Achim and A. Jacob and David in West Orange, New Jersey, for connecting me to Gregory Zuckerman, uh, who is a, a Wall Street Journal uh, writer, uh, a special writer and uh, author of other books, aside from the one we discussed this morning, and he regularly appears on many media outlets, especially on the topic of business and finance. Thursday morning broadcast, more coming up at JM in the AM. That was my conversation with Gregory Zuckerman. Willie Hochman is next. He's from the Joel Paul Group. We had an opportunity to discuss employment 22 months after the start of the pandemic. Here's Willie Hochman on JM Rewind at the Nahum Siegel Network. Well, we mentioned that um, <laughs> there's a lot been going on over the last 22 months that's pandemic-related. That's an understatement, whether it's our schools, our shuls, our travel habits, our entry or lack thereof into Israel and so many other topics that we've brought up, including uh, Dr. Kadish yesterday, uh, about everything that's been happening over these 22 months at Turo. Uh, anyway, so one of the things I mentioned is that um, uh, we need to explore what the last 22 months have been like in the world of employment, and specifically in Jewish not-for-profit. You know that our good friend Willie Hochman, uh, CEO of the Joel Paul Group, uh, is very active. He's on the front lines of what's happening both uh, in regard to employment in general and, of course, employment in the Jewish not-for-profit world. And he joins us live via telephone. Willie, a pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Good morning, Nachum. Always good to be with you and your listeners. Appreciate that very much. So let's start with the general overview. I don't know if you have a lot to say on this uh, th that adds to what we hear from the general media, uh, but what is your impression of employment in general out there almost two years later from the start of the pandemic? How would you classify, categorize, or or, or how would you describe uh, the way the American workforce has adjusted and is now uh, um, going about either working or not working uh, during the early part of 2022? So if I could take us back uh, to the beginning of the pandemic, and the expression I kind of use is, uh, and this was during the recession in the early 2000s, 2008-7. You know, when the economy gets a cold, the nonprofits get the flu. And here, <laughs> you know, with this pandemic that came about, uh, nonprofits uh, and even the general, you know, business world had to readjust. Right. Had to readjust. And you know, in my line of work, we tried to forget about 2020. It was a tough year. We did a few placements. But, you know, most organizations in 2020, you know, were just trying to survive and reimagine re themselves, not knowing what the future is going to bring. Fast forward to 2021 or end of 2020, 21, and our, our wonderful government came out with these programs called PPP, Paytech Protection Program. Many business owners are familiar with it. Many nonprofits are familiar with it. Your listening world has probably heard about PPP. Right. And I have to say that really helped 
a lot of the Jewish nonprofits, you know, continue to, to do their mission uh, because it was money given to the government. It was legitimate that they used it for uh, payroll or rent, which let them still continue with their mission and continue with fundraising. At the end of 2021, my, my reports and speaking to many of our clients and prospects, interestingly enough, many organizations met or exceeded, get that, exceeded their fundraising big, uh, budgets, but that was due depending on their mission. For example, if they're in the family or social services in America or Israel or education-related, not only a tug at your heartstrings, but those kind of organizations, donors, and I give them a kola kavod, yashikoa, they stepped up yep. and they supported their organizations very well. Other organizations, I wouldn't say unfortunately, but those who had to rely on events, uh, parliament meetings, missions to Israel, they had a challenge and they had to adjust. Unfortunately, some of them, quite a few, had to reduce their staffing. And that was, you know, during the 2020, part of 2021. Right now, in 2022, we are seeing a, a definitely a return of many jobs, some new jobs. Uh, and the challenge that I, I see and my clients are seeing out there, and that's an interesting uh, you know, topic, is the jobs are out there, but also very much we're hearing that in the corporate sector. A lot of the jobs are not getting as many candidates, relevant or not. They're not getting as many candidates to come to the table and be interested in leaving what they're doing now and moving you know, to their next move in their career. The first reason we're seeing might be, from the candidate's perspective, you know, uh, what do they say? The grass isn't always greener on the other side. Right. I'm not sure I want to take a risk um, during this pandemic that's still here, and God forbid if it gets worse and my new employer starts to reduce staff, will I be the last one in, first one out? Or, don't know, maybe my position because of what I'm doing will stay on, and, you know, they really have to be doing a lot more research and a lot more discussion with a new potential employer. But the good news is, Dachlam, there are many, many more jobs out there. Uh, one of the sources that we also post on besides our own website is JewishJobs.com. And you'll now see over 700 jobs posted on Jewish jobs around the United States, Israel, uh, and the like. Willie Hochman with us from the Joel Pohl Group. So you always have two sides of the employment coin that you're looking at, one is job availability, and one is, uh, and one is a staff availability. People who want to, you know, fill those jobs. So you're obviously seeing a tremendous number of openings, but you're not getting enough candidates to fill those positions. That that's basically, that's basically correct. Um, the the marketplace is is turning around. I I believe, and I'm talking about this for my clients and candidates. Uh, now, especially, and you just mentioned earlier, you know, travel to Israel is, is opening up right. slowly. Uh, they, they, I believe those organizations that rely on tourists, uh, you know, visiting their um, from America or Europe, wherever, visiting their Israeli organization that they support, is going to make a, a an impression. Also, organizations that do missions to Israel will now be organizing missions for later you know in the year as soon as they can so we're, we're seeing that happen as well 
Willie Hochman's with us from the Joel Paul Group. All right, so now we need to uh, tell these potential candidates how they can get in touch with you because you are uh, the experts when it comes to the Jewish not-for-profit, especially in the executive position space. What should people do if they think they can fill one of these positions that they're either follow, fo- that they're either finding online or one that they're aware of that your company is uh, involved with? Thank you. So very the easiest way is our website address, which is www.joelpaul, two, one word, two names, joelpaul.com. Uh, I have to give a, a little shout-out to Mr. Joel Paul, who I bought the business from 13 years ago. We are probably going to be celebrating our 35th uh, anniversary of being in the business and serving the uh, nonprofit and Jewish nonprofit sector. www.joelpaul.com is the easiest way. All of our client jobs are listed on our website, and it's a very simple process to either apply for a specific job or if you would just like to have us to have your resume, you can do that as well in a generic uh, uh, section of the website to send us your resume. Not sure if we have a job now for you or in the future. I also want to just uh, mention to uh, prospective uh, clients uh, that if you are having challenges filling roles uh, or have new roles that you'd like to explore working with a search firm, there are many advantages working with a search firm. Uh, Also contact joelpaul.com, and uh, you could also uh, email me as well to william at joelpaul.com. So thank uh, you, Nachum. All right, a pleasure. Uh, joelpaul.com is the website, joel, J-O-E-L, paul.com. Uh, you can uh, contact them through the website if you are a potential candidate, or if you want to look at the jobs that are online, if you want to see some of their recent placements, etc. They are an executive search and consulting service, and, of course, their specialty is the Jewish not-for-profit executive realm. So keep that in mind. Uh, we still have our email address uh, active. Those of you out there who uh, know if somebody's looking for a job or if you yourself are looking for a job, you could send us your resume, resume at nachomsegel.com, resume at nachomsegel.com. Feel free uh, to send those over. And anything in the executive Jewish not-for-profit world always gets forwarded over to the folks at the Joel Paul Group. So check out the website, and uh, and hopefully more and more people out there uh, will become uh, – uh, will become candidates, and then eventually will become um, a staff members at some of these uh, key uh, organizations that are in our community. A lot of opportunities out there, Willie. Right? A lot of opportunities. Yes, Malcolm. I just want to, and I want to remind any potential candidate, a professional in the nonprofit, any resume that you send NSN or the Joel Paul Group is treated with the utmost, highest level of confidentiality. Uh, we and any good recruiter does not inquire of a current employer or a past employer on someone's resume about a candidate. There are, you know, respectful rules that we abide by, and that is the highest level of confidentiality while we are dialoguing with a potential candidate. All right, good to hear, and I think that's what people expect. Uh, Willie Hochman is, in fact, the CEO of the Joel Paul Group. Go to the website for information, Joel Paul. Dot com. Willie, I thank you. Thank you for uh, checking in with us, and I hope that 2022 will be a big year for employment out there. There are a lot of people and a lot of companies and organizations that want to uh, that want to continue to grow. Nachum, thank you. If I can make one final comment. Sure. Many jobs, not many, but more and more jobs today are increasing with what they call a hybrid work situation. They are, are 
allowing candidates to work remotely, sometimes fully remote, depending on the type of job, and most cases hybrid, meaning two days, three days in the office, two days they don't have to come into the office. And then there are, of course, those organizations that still do require, and many organizations have come back to the office. So when you read a job description, make sure you know that if it's hybrid, remote, or fully in the office, uh, and you apply appropriately. Very important. So thank you, Malcolm, for that. And uh, always a pleasure to speak to your uh, audience and our community. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And that's a great tip, by the way, to make sure you know what you're getting into in terms of a employment situation. Uh, website, joelpohl.com. Willie Hochman is CEO of the Joel Paul Group, and you are listening to JM in the AM. That was my conversation with Willie Hochman. Dr. Alan Kadish is president of Turo College. We had an opportunity to speak about an event that was upcoming for Turo. Plus, of course, we had a chance to discuss the pandemic and life on the Turo campus. Dr. Alan Kadish, a recent guest on JM and the AM. Here he is on JM Rewind at the Nahum Siegel Network. When you go to the uh, community calendar, nahumsiegel.com slash community dash calendar, you'll see that on... Uh, the 13th of January, there is a Turo College speech language pathology event uh, that's going to be happening. It's basically a virtual open house. The link is there. If you go to NahumSingle.com and click on Community Calendar, the link is there and all the information about speech language pathology and the program. Uh, it will be available, and you can join that on uh, Thursday at um, 6 p.m. via Zoom, part of Turo's uh, ongoing uh, outreach about some of their specific programs. Uh, tomorrow night is Turo Talks, a Zoom program uh, that will uh, begin at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Again, you'll find the link on our community calendar, nachomsegel.com slash community dash calendar. Uh, it is a conversation with Dr. Alan Kadish, who, of course, is the president of Turo, and Judge Ruchi Fryer. They'll discuss her leadership role in the Hasidic community as well as her unusual career path that, believe it or not, began at Turo College at age 30. And to talk about uh, tomorrow night's event and uh, no doubt to reflect on the last couple of years of this challenging time at the helm of Turo College, and I mean that only because of COVID, nothing to do with Turo, it's Dr. Alan Kadish, the president of the Turo College and University System. Dr. Kadish, a pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Thank you so much, Nachum. It's great to be here. Uh, let's start with the event tomorrow night. Uh, is this unusual for someone to begin their college career at age 30? And uh, is it uh, more commonplace, as unusual as it might be, for this to happen at Turo? It's unusual, but certainly not rare or unheard of. Uh, many people end up beginning life on different paths, raising a family uh, in a profession that doesn't suit them, uh, spending time on Torah, and as they get a bit older, uh, they mature or now have more opportunities to do other things. So we have a school, actually, uh, that's designed for students who've taken a few years off from their education and come back to uh, school. Ruchi Fryer actually didn't go to that school. She went to uh, Turo College Flatbush, Lander College of Arts and Sciences. Ah. But um, this is something we, as I said, it's not common, 
but uh, she's certainly not the only one. Um, first Hasidic female judge, founder of the All Female Ambulance Corps. She's known as a trailblazer. Uh, can you tell us what is so remarkable about her? I think there are a couple of things. One is, and most importantly, her humanity. Uh, she really relates to other people extraordinarily well, and she cares about people and is willing to do whatever it takes that makes sense to help people in trouble and to advance the community. And what I think there are many people who have those desires. What, what's unusual about Rookie Fryer is that she also has tremendous talent. Right. Uh, is incredibly smart, incredibly personable, and uh, is able to make things happen. Uh, and uh, I think her career, both as a judge, and she's been a judge for several years in different settings, um, and uh, as you pointed out, uh, founding an all-female ambulance volunteer corps, which is, was not simple or uh, certainly not uncontroversial, uh, has shown that she's willing to work hard and accomplish things that otherwise seem extraordinarily difficult. Dr. Alan Kadish is with us, the uh, president of Turo. Tomorrow night he's in conversation with Judge Rochi Fryer. Again, you can go to our website, nahomsegal.com. The community calendar section, you'll see it tomorrow night at 8 p.m. The link is there to register, etc. Uh, we'll get on to other things in a moment, but before we wrap up about what you're doing tomorrow night, um, how about a word um, uh, for those parents and students out there uh, who would like very much, as I'm sure she did, uh, to stay in as Jewish an environment as possible while pursuing uh, their academics? That's um, uh, something that Turo takes great pride in. Uh, tell me about how Turo helps people balance their academic and Jewish lives while they're preparing for their career. Look, at Turo College, it's very easy. Um, we have in the schools that are designed to serve the Frum community, schools which are Shomer Shabbos, which are kosher, and where life events are understood. Um, and so we try to make it an academically rigorous, career-preparing personal growth environment, but which also uh, not only respects observant Jews, but idolizes and encourages that behavior. And we think that that creates a unique environment. And and the fact is, because we have so many graduate schools which create all kinds of opportunities and because our students have had success, regardless of where they choose to go to graduate school, we think it's a great option. So Rookie Fryer is a great example of that. Uh, she started her education at age 30. She hadn't been in school for a while and didn't have a strong academic background before she got to Turo. And uh, as she'll talk about tomorrow night, uh, she was inspired by a number of her professors, went on to Fordham Law School, and then uh, went on to uh, success professionally, personally, and uh, doing great things for the community. And so that's the kind of environment we encourage. And uh, we've, she's by far not the only success story. And uh, we uh, pride ourselves in being able to uh, nurture those kinds of people's, people. One other uh, quick example is um, the uh, valedictorian of our uh, osteopathic medical school in Middletown, New York, last year. Uh, had six children when she started medical school. <laughs> Ten when she finished. Oh, my gosh. Never took a semester off. 
and graduated first in her class. <laughs> so uh, we have some extraordinarily talented students, uh, but we have programs designed to uh, try to nurture the best out of everyone, regardless of their talent level. Pretty amazing. I'm sure everyone listening is wondering how on earth someone could balance all of that. Uh, Dr. Kadish, in conversation with uh, Judge Fryer, uh, you can hear the story of Orthodox Jewish trailblazer, the Honorable Rachel Ruchi Fryer, uh, tomorrow night. Uh, go to our website, NahumSiegel.com, click on the community calendar, and you'll see the link where you could register for tomorrow night's event. A couple of other things, um, uh, President Kadish. Uh, it's no secret. It's been uh, in the media that uh, it seems that Turo is going to have an even larger uh, footprint in Midtown Manhattan. Um, uh, it, 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 I assume that's the plan to, uh, I don't want to say consolidate, but I guess uh, to help grow uh, the university um, uh, w- with, um, uh, with, an, with a uh, significant real estate acquisition uh, in Midtown Manhattan. So we actually are, in a sense, consolidating, is that we're taking um, schools that were in separate facilities and bringing them together. And uh, we're very excited about that. And we're excited about that uh, for a couple of reasons. One is it uh, increases the possibility of collaboration among people in different fields on on the faculty level, on the student level. Uh, It will create uh, a secure environment in a place that's very easy to get to. And that has high visibility. And uh, it's not all our campuses. The undergraduate schools that are designed to serve the Orthodox community will remain where they are in Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan. But this is uh, most of our Manhattan-based graduate schools, as well as an undergraduate program that's designed to serve the general community, will be housed in this uh, brand-new, beautiful facility, which we're extraordinarily excited about. And will that? when does that begin? Uh, in the near future, so, September? Uh, actually, it'll begin in January, January. of uh, 23 for the spring semester. And uh, we'll continue in our current environment, which is fine until then. But uh, this will upgrade our facilities and increase the possibility of collaboration. So we're really excited about it. Well, congratulations. It certainly seems significant, and it certainly seems to the benefit of so many, uh, both within and uh, outside of our community. Uh, Dr. Alan Kadish is with us, president of Turo. Um, it, it was two years ago, literally two years ago, that, uh, that you were one of our first guests uh, who was on the air to discuss the uh, what, what it then was uh, referred to as COVID-19. Now it's taken on a bunch of other iterations. Um, so, number one, it, it sounds like, from the conversations you and I have had over the last 22 months, it sounds like your campuses have adjusted to no matter what the situation is. I'm wondering, with Omicron and the recent events of the last few weeks, if anything has had to have been adjusted in any significant way in the way that uh, things are happening on campuses. So, of course it has. Uh, one of the challenges with dealing with uh, the COVID pandemic is that things seem to change every week. And one of the things that we've been lucky enough with a great faculty staff and committed students is to be able to adjust, as you suggested, based on what circumstances are. So uh, last Purim, we went remote uh, between uh, Erev Purim and Shushan Purim. That's two Purims ago, just reminding everybody. That's two Purims ago. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, Thank you. And uh, we've uh, tried to maintain as much in-person instruction as we can since then, but we successfully operated uh, for a couple of years, as you pointed out, in various iterations with a lot of our education being remote. Uh, 
We had hoped to start the entire spring semester in person. For some of our programs, which start at the beginning of January, these are graduate programs primarily, we've actually delayed the in-person start till later in January. The undergraduate schools, uh, we're, uh, our next semester start on January 24th. Um, we don't know for sure whether we're going to be fully in person on January 24th or not. The situation with Omicron is just too fluid. And as I said, we've had a great staff that's been able to adapt, along with our students, to changing requirements based on public health. It must get frustrating at some point for the leaders of your institution and the staff and faculty that so much of their day, uh, at least this is the impression I'm under, so much of the day is dealing with these policies and changes and uh, strategies in order to you know get as much done as possible. That, that our top academics and that our uh, uh, top administrative members have had to incorporate this entire subject into their daily lives has got to be frustrating for some of them. So I, I've had this conversation with a bunch of colleagues who are presidents at, at other colleges, and I think probably the best word to use is exhaustion. Yep. Uh, it just takes a tremendous amount of effort to be able to figure out what to do at any given moment. And, of course, it's one of those situations where there's no real right answer. You try to do, make the best decision you can and create the best learning environment that you can uh, for a given situation. And it's often um, difficult because there are competing interests, all of whom have the best of intentions. Uh, and no matter what we do, there are people who say that we're being too restrictive, and there will be people who say we're not restrictive enough. Yeah. And so trying to uh, do the best we can for our students while being buffeted from points of view uh, all over the place uh, is a challenge. Um, it does seem that everyone who's in any way connected with the Turo system has uh, overnight uh, earned an MPH, Master of Public Health, and is now an expert on what we should do. Um, and so uh, we've tried to do the best we can, making the best decisions to continue education while keeping safe. We've been extraordinarily lucky so far. Uh, we have had uh, one or two either faculty members or police people closely associated with Turo who haven't made it, but it's been few and far between. And so we've been lucky, uh, blessed by Hashem, and um, we're going to continue to try to do what we can. But if you ask me, as of today, January 11th, what's going to happen in two weeks, I actually can't tell you because uh, I'm not smart enough to know exactly what's going to happen with Omicron over the next two weeks. The South African experience that it burned itself out after a huge spike is encouraging, but we're not confident yet that that is going to happen in New York or exactly when it's going to happen in New York, even if it is. There are some positive trends in the last week, um, a lower percentage of people being tested who are positive for coronavirus, uh, but we're still seeing a spike in hospitalization and a spike in deaths. So we're not out of the woods yet, and as I said, I'm not sure that we can predict exactly how things are going to progress 
over the next couple of weeks. You know, it's funny because of your background in academics and in medicine, I think that was the focus of our post-Purim conversation two years ago was predictions and how long you and others think this will last, etc. And I think, as you just indicated, just like you're out of that game now, I think everybody's sort of out of that game now. We just have no idea anymore. And nobody's nobody feels confident to actually give a prediction because you never know what's going to happen. What 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 happens when a new variant is announced, uh, or you know some new? Uh, uh, do, do you roll your eyes the same way the rest of us do when when you get that feeling of here we go again when you hear of some new variant coming from somewhere on this globe? Well, look, I think um, do we say I, I can't believe this is happening again on one level? Sure. On a scientific level and a, and a medical level, uh, I think we know exactly what's going on. Viruses mutate. RNA viruses typically mutate. That's the kind of virus that causes uh, COVID-19 or the COVID pandemic. Um, so it's no surprise they mutate. What we're certainly not smart enough to predict is what the mutation will result in. And so um, Delta, which was the mutation responsible for the previous wave, um, was more dangerous and more lethal. Right. Omicron is much more infectious, but less dangerous on a case-by-case basis. And there's no way, I think, that uh, anyone could be sure that was going to happen. There are other pandemics that have kind of died out, we think, by less, less lethal mutations. So it's possible that uh, Omicron, which, as I've told people, if you don't hibernate, you're going to get Omicron. It's that infectious. If you're vaccinated and boosted, you very likely won't get sick. If you've had COVID recently, you very likely won't get sick. But if you're up and around and not very careful, you're going to get it. Uh, so it, it's possible that enough that Omicron, and I'm hopeful, that Omicron will drive herd immunity and that the immunity will be effective enough so that when we see the next variant, we won't be as susceptible to it. But there's no way of guaranteeing that's happening uh, because the virus doesn't care about politics. The virus doesn't care about people rolling their eyes, and the virus doesn't care about exhaustion. The virus does what it does, uh, and uh, we have to be prepared to deal with whatever's going to happen. And if that, means, so, if that means getting used to living with it, it means getting used to living with it. Absolutely, and I think um, I, I don't think Omicron's going to go make it go away. I think there's a possibility that Omicron could make it be like the flu, right? By getting enough people with enough immunity, so that uh, it doesn't spread. Um, we, you know, one of the frustrating things is that uh, people who've been vaccinated, people who've had COVID, who think that they ought to have immunity, are getting it again, right? And and fully understandably. That leads to a tremendous amount of skepticism. But the reality is that, uh, as I said, the virus does what it does, and we have to be prepared to do what we can. And I think that um, public health authorities, the CDC, uh, the World Health Organization, uh, have been in a very, very difficult position uh, because data are changing daily. They have to make recommendations before they have all the information they'd like. Have they made mistakes? In my view, absolutely. There have been some serious mistakes. But I think once guidelines are issued, they generally make sense. And uh, the current recommendations to continue masking, to get vaccine boosters, are probably still, despite 
some of the cynicism, the best way that each of us can act to help make this, as you say, something we live with that's kind of low-key rather than a crisis. So why is it a crisis? Why aren't we saying, let's just live with it, let's just forget about it, right. and uh, it, it won't be a problem? And I think there are two important reasons. One is, in many parts of the country, particularly in parts of the country with this vaccine skepticism, hospitals are simply overwhelmed. And it's not just COVID. Elective procedures are being canceled. Screening for cancer is being canceled. Nurses are out sick. Nurse-to-patient ratios have changed. And if you forget about COVID, if you're in the hospital with another illness in one of those areas, you're not getting good care because there's just not the personnel with the ability and bandwidth to deal with it. So there is an important reason in those places where hospitals are overwhelmed to say it's going to have a substantial detriment to public health if we let it run rampant. We're not there in New York yet. Hospitals are only up 90 percent. Hospitalizations are only up 90 percent but uh, or 100 percent. But we could get there soon if uh, infections overwhelm us. And so we're not at a state yet where we can say, let's just ignore it because the healthcare system is going to get overwhelmed. And the second thing is Omicron may be two to five times less dangerous than the other variants, but if five times as many people get it, which may actually be what's happening, then it's going to mean people are in the intensive care unit, people are on extraordinary measures to keep, keep them alive, and people are going to die. And deaths are going up more slowly with a lag, true, but deaths are going up. So Omicron, while it has some features that are less dangerous and that it's less likely to call pneumonia, it's not safe, particularly for vulnerable people. And ignoring it, we're not quite at the stage, I believe, where we can ignore it. I think we still need to, have, to exercise care. We still need to get vaccinated, develop immunity, and we still need to be careful in highly crowded public places that we don't overwhelm the healthcare system and allow the vulnerable people to get sick and perhaps die. And the hope is that it, uh, like you mentioned in South Africa, that it goes away relatively quickly uh, as compared to Delta. Maybe a couple of weeks from now we'll be speaking completely differently about this. Exactly, and that's why in in our planning, as we talked about earlier, we're uh, probably in a way that frustrates many people, we're saying we have a tentative plan, but we're going to have to be careful and adjust as public health conditions change. Right. Understood. Dr. Alan Kadish, he's president of Turo College. Always enjoy his uh, commentary, especially about the uh, COVID-19 situation, which he's done for us often over the last couple of years. I remind you that tomorrow night during the Turo Talks series, Dr. Kadish will be speaking with Turo graduate Judge Rachel Ruchi Fryer, discussing her leadership role in the Hasidic community as well as her unusual career path that began at Turo College. Uh, the link to register for the event is on our website. Just go to nachomsegel.com slash community dash calendar, and you will see it under January the 12th. It happens tomorrow night beginning at 8 p.m. Dr. Kadish, good luck with tomorrow night's event. Continued good luck at Turo. Um, and Mazel Tov on the, uh, uh, the new facility as you get set to uh, move in one year from now. And uh, thanks so much for joining us this morning. 
Great as always, and I look forward to speaking with you in the future. Appreciate that. Dr. Alan Kadish, president of Turo College, on a Tuesday morning broadcast here at JM in the AM. That was my conversation with Dr. Alan Kadish. Thanks so much for tuning in. More coming up. Keep it right here on NSN, the Nahum Siegel Network.